you can't have one rule for Democrat presidents and another rule for Republican presidents. Well, funny thing. Turns out you can. If you're a hypocrite enough. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In New Orleans on WHIV, hope they're being careful down there with the storm headed their way. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet-based. Not to mention your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Even if I'm not feeling so swell today, Desi Doyen. Yep, you're still here. I am still here. There's (laughs) that. (laughs) Uh, It is official today, however, that uh, after the very conservative counters at Johns Hopkins University have acknowledged we now have more than 200,000 Americans who have now died due to the coronavirus under Donald Trump's gross criminal negligence and failing to create a national strategy for dealing with the worst pandemic in more than a century so that he could continue to try and pretend everything is just fine in order to hoax the nation into uh, re-electing him. AP describes the 200,000 figure as unimaginable eight months ago when the scourge first reached the world's richest nation with its sparkling laboratories, top-flight scientists and stockpiles of medicines and emergency supplies. Johns Hopkins University public health researcher Jennifer Nutzo says it is completely unfathomable that we have reached this point. Even as the real toll is thought to be much higher, in part because many COVID-19 deaths were probably ascribed to other causes, especially early on in the crisis. The death toll, in fact, is likely to be about 60,000 deaths higher than the 200,000 reported confirmed at this point in the U.S. The number of confirmed dead in the U.S. 
is equivalent now to a 9-11 attack every single day for 67 days in a row. It's roughly equal to the entire population of Salt Lake City, Utah, or Huntsville, Alabama, being completely wiped out, erased from the map. That is how many Americans we have lost. And that number is still climbing. COVID deaths are running at close to 770 a day on average. And another widely cited, if even more conservative model from the University of Washington predicts the overall U.S. death toll will double to more than 400,000 by the end of this year as schools and colleges reopen. And yet the president of the United States last night in Ohio was telling his supporters that the virus is virtually non-existent, nothing to worry about at all, at another one of his shoulder-to-shoulder, largely mask-free campaign rallies. It affects virtually nobody. It's it's an amazing thing. By the way, open your schools. Everybody open your schools. It affects virtually nobody. Dr. Cedric Dark, an emergency physician at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, quoted in AP's coverage today, says that in the case of our country, we failed miserably. Before the crisis, he says, people used to look to the U.S. with a degree of reverence for democracy, for our moral leadership in the world, supporting science and using technology to travel to the moon. Instead, he said, what's really been exposed is how anti-science we have become. Uh, Well, more on the deadly effects of how anti-science we have become a bit later today in our Green News Report with Desi Doyen. Hello, Desiree. Hi. But I would add to that today how anti-democracy we have also become over those very same years. Iowa's U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, former, formerly the chair of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, where nominations to the U.S. Supreme Court are first heard, he told the Des Moines Register just in July of this year that he would not support a new Supreme Court nominee in 2020, telling the paper at the time, You can't have one rule for Democrat presidents and another rule for Republican presidents. Well, apparently you can. In the senator's defense, you know, that was way back in July. I mean, that was almost two months ago. And heck, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg hadn't even died yet. So, you know, things change. Specifically, the uh, hypothetical is now real. With the passing of RBG last Friday, so we move from hypothetical to hypocritical, I guess, for yet another mind-bogglingly dishonest and, yes, anti-democratic Republican U.S. senator. Chuck Grassley said Monday night that he will not oppose holding hearings or taking a vote on Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, which Trump has said he will now name on Saturday before Ruth Bader Ginsburg is even buried next week. Classy. According to the Des Moines Register, Grassley said, Over the years and as recently as July, I've consistently said that taking up and evaluating a nominee in 2020 would be a decision for the current chair of the Judiciary Committee and the Senate Majority Leader. Both have now confirmed their intentions to move forward, so that's what will happen. Never mind, he's on the committee. He could vote against this happening. But, you know, 
That statement statement sidesteps his past position as the register notes. Back in 2016, he was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and became the face of the Republican effort to block Democratic President Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. Grassley has since reiterated that stance, saying in a July 2018 taping of Iowa Press that he would not support confirming a Supreme Court nominee in a presidential election year. But, he says now, the circumstances today are different. The same party controls the White House and the Senate now, unlike in 2016. Oh, well, that's a hypocrite of a different color, I guess. (laughs) He says while there was ambiguity about the American people's will for the direction of the court in 2016 under a divided government, there is no such ambiguity in 2020, he said. So far, only two Republican senators have come out in opposition of confirming a new nominee to the high court before the election. That would be Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Back in 2016, of course, as the register notes, Grassley and other prominent Republicans like Mitch McConnell said repeatedly and clearly that the Senate should not confirm a Supreme Court justice in an election year because it would be unfair to voters. They said nothing at the time about this divided government excuse they're coming up with now. Two years later, in June of 2018, another election year, Justice Anthony Kennedy, he announced he would retire. That set off the confirmation battle over Brett Kavanaugh proceedings that Grassley again oversaw as chair of the Judiciary Committee still at the time, saying then that it was a midterm election year. So he was comfortable moving forward with those proceedings because it was not a presidential election year. Even though the Senate might have changed hands that year during that year's uh, midterm elections. But now everything is different. By the way, Iowa's junior senator, Republican Joni Ernst, is among the Republicans this year saying that the Senate should move forward with the confirmation process, despite the fact that she opposed it back in 2016. She told the Des Moines Register's editorial board in July of 2018 that a sitting president should not nominate justices to the Supreme Court in an election year. Asked whether that should hold true for Donald Trump, Ernst said, yes, Trump should wait to be reelected. It's precedent set, she said. So come 2020, if there's an opening, I'm sure you'll remind me of that, she told the board. Hopefully Ernst's opponent for re-election this November, Democratic nominee Teresa Greenfield, will help remind Ernst of that, or at least remind Ernst's voters of that. Greensfield now leads Ernst by three points in the latest Des Moines Register poll, the gold standard in that state. That was released just last week. In a statement issued on Monday, Ernst said, Once the president puts forward his nominee for the Supreme Court, I will carry out my duty as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee to evaluate the nominee for our nation's highest court. Hypocrisy accomplished. While four Republicans would have to uh, prove to not be hypocrites to block Trump's nominee before nomination uh, before the election, One of the last hopes for that was Utah Senator Mitt Romney. 
He gave up the ghost there as well today on Tuesday. He threw his support behind a floor vote on Trump's nominee, whoever it may be. He does not care. Which is interesting. They don't even know who the nominee is. They've already decided they're that to go. they're going to go ahead and make sure it's whatever. It they could be can, Satan himself. They can cast their votes now. Yeah, why not? Romney claimed in a statement that the historical precedent of election year nominations is that the Senate generally does not confirm an opposing party's nominee, but does confirm a nominee of its own. Accordingly, he added, I intend to follow the Constitution and precedent in considering the the president's nominee. Well, of course, when precedent is whatever you make it up to be in the moment. The uh, man uh, who Romney voted just months ago during Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate should be removed from office is uh, nonetheless deserving, I guess, of having a third Supreme Court justice nominated and appointed for life uh, to an already stolen U.S. Supreme Court, according to the miraculous Mr. Romney, who voted to impeach this president just months ago. With uh, Romney's announcement, it now appears that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has enough votes to proceed with his move to consider Trump's Supreme Court pick just weeks ahead of the November presidential election. Actually, of the November presidential election day, because voting has already begun in a whole bunch of states in that election. The Utah senator's support of a floor vote comes on the heels of two more key GOP senators. That would be Grassley and Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado, who is believed almost certain to be voted out of the Senate in November against Democratic nominee John Hickenlooper. Gardner is now on board for a vote as well, despite his statement after the death after the death of Justice Scalia in February of 2016. When he was asked about confirming a new justice back then, he said, quote, I think we're too close to the election. The president who was elected in November should be the one who makes this decision. And with that, the prince of Senate hypocrites, after King Mitch McConnell, of course, Lindsey Graham, who now chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, he announced that, yes, They have the votes to begin those hearings and to hold a vote on the floor for a new justice on the Supreme Court to give Republicans an even larger stolen majority of six to three on the nation's high court. That after Graham said back in 2016 during a Judiciary Committee hearing while they were blocking Obama's nominee for a full year. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that in the last year, at least of a lame duck eight-year term, I would say it's going to be a four-year term, that you're not going to fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court based on what we're doing here today. That's going to be the new rule. That's going to be the new rule, says Lindsey Graham back in 2016, at least until we prefer a new new rule to take its place as politically convenient. Hopefully, uh, Lindsey Graham's Democratic challenger, Jamie Harrison, is taking note of this, where uh, Harrison and Graham are said to be tied in the latest polls in South Carolina. 
Hopefully, this will make the difference. Graham told Fox News' Sean Hannity uh, that the committee he oversees would, quote, move forward and report the nomination to the Senate floor, quote, so we can vote before the election. We're going to have a process that you'll be proud of, Graham promised. The nominee will be supported by every Republican in the Judiciary Committee, he said, and we have the votes to confirm the justice on the floor of the Senate before the election, and that's what's coming, he promised. That before he even knows who that nominee is actually going to be. But who cares? They'll be nominated by a Republican, and that's good enough for American democracy in 2020 under a president who received fewer votes than the woman who was declared the loser in 2016 and in a U.S. Senate where more votes were cast for Democratic senators than for Republican senators. Yes, American democracy is now broken. And, as I see it, expanding the Supreme Court, if Democrats can win back the White House and the Senate this year, I realize that's a big if, that it now appears to be the only way to even begin to even begin repairing American democracy. As we will discuss next with Harvard Law School legal historian Michael Klarman after this quick break. I'm Brad Friedman and this is the Bradcast. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hope as much. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. What once seemed unthinkable has quickly become quite thinkable indeed. Following Friday's passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's vow to hold a vote on whoever Donald Trump nominates to take her place uh, right now. Before Election Day, which is just over 40 days away, even though voting has already begun in that election in many states. An idea that seemed radical just a few years ago in response to McConnell holding a Supreme Court seat open for a full year during the last year of Obama's term after the passing of Justice Scalia in order to then allow the next president a year later to fill the seat with a Republican appointee. Well, an idea in response to that seems much less radical today, and not just among progressives and legal historians, but even among elected Democrats themselves, who are a notoriously unradical bunch, unfortunately. Writing over the weekend at Mother Jones following the death of RBG, reporter Kara Vaught noted increasing support among Democrats for the idea of adding more seats to the Supreme Court bench in response to not only the stolen Republican seat in 2016, but what is being viewed by many as a second stolen seat now that the Republican Party has essentially admitted that McConnell's claim that, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of the next Supreme Court justice. 
a claim he made back when one had died a full nine months before the election. Well, that apparently is no longer operative after a Democratic appointee to the court died just 46 days before the next election with a Republican president sitting in the White House. As Vought reports, expanding the courts is finally gaining support among at least some Democrats and uh, candidates. During the 2020 presidential primary, she writes, of course, this was before RBG's death, 11 Democratic presidential candidates said they would be open to expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court. Contenders like former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, hardly a leftist radical, and Senator Elizabeth Warren argued that doing so would be crucial for restoring the court's legitimacy as a nonpartisan institution after the GOP's success in politicizing it with its appointees. Candidates for Congress have picked up the baton. For example, Mondaire Jones, Democratic candidate for Congress in New York's 17th Congressional District, has put court expansion at the very center of his campaign platform. Even before yesterday evening, Jones told Mother Jones the day after Ginsburg passed, it was abundantly clear that we have a partisan right-wing majority on the Supreme Court that is hostile to democracy itself and the will of Congress, Jones said, citing, for example, the Supreme Court's 2013 gutting of the Voting Rights Act, which had previously been renewed with bipartisan support in Congress. Jones on his uh, Democratic colleagues uh, called on his Democratic colleagues to include court expansion in H.R. One. That is their Democratic landmark Democratic reform bill, which the party has signaled will be at the top of their agenda if Biden wins the White House next year. If we don't deal with the issue of partisan conservative majority in the Supreme Court by expanding the court, then we are going to be back where we started, said Jones. Pretty much everything in the progressive agenda will be vulnerable to the stolen courts, warned Aaron Belkin. He's the co-founder of Take Back the Court. Biden, he said, needs to realize that. Jones's calls will likely be met with support from at least some progressive federal lawmakers, Marie Newman, a Democratic candidate for Illinois, and similarly on track as Mondaire Jones is in New York to win her seat, tweeted her support of expanding the court. But it's not just candidates, it's also elected officials. Congressman Jerry Nadler, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, tweeted his support for the idea, saying, quote, if Senator McConnell and the Republican uh, Senate were to force through a nominee before a Senate, a new Senate and president can take office, then the incoming Senate should immediately move to expand the Supreme Court. On Friday night, Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts tweeted that he and his fellow Senate Democrats, quote, must expand the court if they regain control of the Senate. A majority of Democrats apparently are on their side, according to a poll conducted by Data for Progress back in May of 2019. Again, that was before the passing of RBG. Take Back the Court's Belkin gave a briefing to Democratic congressional staffers on Supreme Court expansion just last month. And there's a school of thought that even the threat of court packing, so-called court packing, some might call it court unpacking, 
under a Democratic-controlled Senate and White House might scare McConnell into not making good on his promise to confirm another Trump nominee. So far, however, those threats are, are, are apparently not loud enough or serious enough to prevent McConnell's plans. Moreover, so far, anyway, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has not yet signaled support for such a bold reform. Last year, he told an Iowa media site that he's, quote, not prepared to go on and try to pack the court because we'll live to rue that day, he said. I don't know if he or his or uh, his campaign has yet rung in on the matter following the loss of Justice Ginsburg. But earlier this year. Belkin and fellow political scientist James Drucker tried to assuage concerns with research on swing state voters that found Republican and independent voters are no more likely to vote or to vote for Republican candidates if a Democratic candidate endorses court expansion. Biden, according to Vought at Mother Jones, has signaled a desire for an FDR-style presidency premised on the sorts of sweeping reforms that Roosevelt enacted to bring the country back from the brink of economic collapse. And he had also been derailed by a reactionary high court. Belkin warns pretty much everything, everything in the progressive agenda will be vulnerable to the stolen courts. Biden, he said, needs to realize that. Two years ago on this program, and I can't believe it has now been two years, Harvard Law Professor Michael Klarman joined us on this show to argue that it would be political malpractice or political suicide, as I recall he, he described it, for Democrats to not expand the court in reaction to the reactionary Republicans whenever Democrats were next able to win back both the White House and a Democratic majority in the Senate. The size of the court is determined by legislation, not by the Constitution, and has changed size many times over the courts to over the country's 244 year history, including arguably when Mitch McConnell effectively reduced the size of the court to just eight seats for more than a year following the death of Antonin Scalia in early 2016. Joining us once again is Harvard Law Professor Michael Klarman, where he is the Kirkland and Ellis Professor and author of the upcoming paper for the Harvard Law Review titled The Degradation of American Democracy and the Court. As it happens, Professor Klarman also once clerked for the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg back in uh, 1983 and 1984 when she was a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. So we may get a bit of a twofer out of him today on uh, both expanding the Supreme Court and on the now late RBG. Welcome back to the broadcast, Professor. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, you clerked for uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, before she was a justice. I, I just want to get sort of uh, your top-line uh, response to her death just days ago on Friday. Uh, it's obviously very very sad for everybody who knew her and loved her. Uh, I don't feel bad for her. She had an incredible life. She had one of the most consequential lives of anyone I can think of, and she also, while being the hardest-working person I've ever met, um, managed to managed to lead an incredibly uh, fulfilling and active life. Um, she loved opera. She loved to travel. She loved riding horses. Um, she loved her family. She had many great friends. Um, it's hard to feel bad about 
somebody living 87 years and making these extraordinary contributions and managing to enjoy themselves at the same time. Mm. Uh, but it's it's been really powerful seeing the thousands of people showing up in the Supreme Court. Yeah, um, she was obviously a she was obviously a role model and an icon to millions of Americans in a way that I think probably no Supreme Court justice other than maybe Thurgood Marshall um, ever was before. You were uh, kind enough to share some of your thoughts with me uh, earlier on your experience uh, clerking for her on the federal bench back in the 80s. Was she already by that time, by 83 and 84 when you worked with her, was she already considered a, a, a bit of a legend in the legal world? And, and was, was that something that you were aware of as a clerk in her office? Um, I think the answer is the only people who were fairly cognizant of what was going on in a certain sector of litigation in the 1970s. Um, I was a 24-year-old out of Stanford Law School, and I had no idea that she had been the leading women's rights lawyer of the 1970s. I imagine some of my female classmates might have been aware of it, but I certainly was not. Um, she She didn't become a cultural icon until the last 15 years. And remember, this is an era before the Internet, so it's not like you could type her name in and <laughs> it would you know, spit, spit out lots of results telling you what she had done. Right. I knew Jimmy Carter had appointed her. I knew she'd been a law professor. Um, I think I was probably a little naive, but I, I think lots of people um, would not have known what she had done. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, obviously she became more famous when she was put on the Supreme Court and President Clinton compared her explicitly to what, Thurgood Marshall had done with regard to civil rights, but um, no, she was not. Uh, she was not famous in the way that um, that some, you know, Robert mm-hmm. Bork was in the office next door, and um, you know, he. I think he would probably been a lot better known, uh-huh. uh, having been the Solicitor General who perpetrated the Saturday Night Massacre in yeah. 1973. I, you know, I was also struck uh, struck by uh, thoughts that you were kind enough to send, where you mentioned uh, that in 1972. Which does not seem that long ago, to me at least. Uh, Ginsburg became the first female tenured professor at Columbia Law School, 1972. And that it was due in part to the Nixon administration's threat to cut off federal funding to universities that discriminated against women. That just uh, struck me today, uh, Professor, as... A stunning example of how far to the radical right the Republican Party has really turned over these past 50 years or so, as they're now sort of threatening the exact opposite when it comes to affirmative action. Yeah, and and the Nixon administration also pioneered race-based affirmative action in the construction industry. It's only starting with Reagan's election in, in 1980 that the Republican Party has turned hostile to affirmative action. Nixon was a liberal on lots of issues. It's just that he ran for president in 1968 on a law and order order platform and a kind of uh, dog whistle racial uh, racist platform. But on lots of other issues, Nixon favored a a negative income tax. He created the Environmental Protection Agency. He was responsible for passing landmark clean air and clean water legislation. And as you say, his his Justice Department was a lot more liberal than he was, and he was always at war with it. So I don't know whether I'd say Nixon necessarily was all on board with gender affirmative action. But remember, that's the year Congress passed the Equal Rights Amendment, and mm. the Nixon administration didn't oppose that either. Mm. Right? It's only through the 1970s that people like Phyllis Schlafly and then the Moral Majority and Jerry Falwell 
sort of declared war on feminism. If you're still back in the early 70s, it was a different, mm-hmm. uh, different ball of wax. But it does give us uh, an idea of how, how far the party, the Republican Party in any event, has, uh, has changed over just a few decades. In your new uh, uh, Harvard Law Review paper, Upcoming, The Degradation of American Democracy and the Court, uh, you note that during the 19th century, Congress frequently altered the size of the court, often in pursuit of partisan advantage. The last such change, you say, was made in 1869, when the court was expanded from seven to nine to enable Republican President Ulysses S. Grant to fill seats that had been removed so that Democratic President Andrew Johnson could not fill them. So even then, it seems, Republicans were manipulating the court for partisan advantage, it sounds like. Uh, But in fact, as you also note, it seems to me that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, in fact, altered the size of the court themselves for an entire year in 2016, creating an eight-person court uh, until they had a president from their own party to fill it. Uh, they didn't vote to change the size of the court. They just did it by procedural fiat for a year and vowed they would even do it for four years of Hillary Clinton's term if she had been elected, no? Well, at least three Republican senators before the 2016 election had made that claim leading into the election that they would not support anyone Hillary Clinton nominated. Uh, who knows whether all of the Republicans would have done that, but it seems pretty plausible since the Republican Party really doesn't countenance dissent anymore. Um, the argument for altering the size of the court is very straightforward, and I think it's almost unanswerable. So the only argument against it is if Democrats do it, Republicans will do it, and we'll be in a retaliatory cycle that will never end. But there are three different responses to that. Mm-hmm. One is the Republicans have already done it by shrinking the size of the court by one. Second, that Republicans will do it whether Democrats do it or not the first time it appeals to Mitch McConnell to do it. Mitch McConnell has demonstrated in the last couple days that he's just an utter and complete hypocrite, which is, I think, true and also not a surprise given the way he's behaved in his years as as majority leader. Mm -hmm. One could come up with a whole list of ways in which he's done damage to American democracy, but this is certainly one of the prominent ones. So if Republicans are going to pack the court anyhow, it's hardly an argument against Democrats doing doing it that if Democrats do it, Republicans will do it. And the other the other argument is, you know, we need to break out of the situation we're in right now, which is a Republican Party and a president that are threats to American democracy. The Republican Party suppresses votes in a, a score of different ways at the local level with voter ID laws. Uh, with voter purges, uh, shutting down mobile voting sites so that college campuses can encourage students to vote. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary what the Republican Party is doing in order to steal elections. And what we need to do is Democrats need to win entrenched democracy. And as you quoted, several people are now pointing out, you can entrench democracy and the Supreme Court will strike it down, and you can pass any progressive measure the Democrats want, whether it's gun control, environmental legislation, expanding the right to vote, uh, Green New Deal, any of that, the Supreme Court will come up with some contrived constitutional argument to stri- strike down. If you actually entrench democracy and all Americans who wanted to vote could vote without obstacles, the Republican Party understands they would never win another election until they start changing their policies so that they appeal to more Americans. They would have to drop the racism, the sexism, the homophobia, the xenophobia, 
the opposition to climate change, the climate change denialism. They would have to change their policies. They would have to support support reasonable gun control legislation. They would have to support some uh, environmental measures that would save us from climate change. But so far, they don't do that. Rather than trying to change their policies to be appealing to majorities, what they do is they try to suppress votes Mm -hmm. and take advantage of these structural advantages they have in the Senate, in the House, in the Electoral College. The the deck is stacked against Democrats, and if Democrats don't do this when they take control, Biden is very likely to win, and the Democrats are more likely than not to take control of the Senate. They will get one opportunity to do this right, and if they don't, They will probably lose the Senate in the off-year elections, and the Senate is projected to pretty much always be Republican as more and more people move into fewer and fewer states, and states like Wyoming continue to enjoy this ridiculous advantage Mm -hmm. of two senators per state. So Democrats get one chance to do this right, and if they don't do it, then you're going to have to give up on American democracy pretty soon because this Republican Party is going to support an authoritarian president who doesn't believe in freedom of speech, who doesn't believe in um, freedom of the press, who doesn't believe in independent judges, who encourages violence, who uh, pals around with autocrats around the world, and the Republican Party's fine with all that. People don't, don't seem to appreciate how alarming the situation is. You know, we're on the cusp of losing our democracy. This is the most important election in American history since the Civil War. You know, I'm glad you mentioned this, because as I was uh, reading your paper today and uh, from a historical aspect of the the degradation of American democracy, to me, it did not seem particularly partisan, though I suspect Republicans would look at it and, you know, call you some sort of a lefty pinko activist professor. I don't know what they would, you know, how they. But it seems to me that these are just facts. They're not partisan issues. Do you see the expansion of the court? as you see it, more as a political necessity for Democrats in this case, or a necessity for the health of democracy itself as you see it? In other words, do you favor this for partisan reasons, or is this necessary to combat what you describe as the degradation of democracy? Right. So if it makes me partisan to support Democrats because Democrats support democracy and Republicans don't seem to care about democracy, then I'm a partisan. I'd be proud to be called an activist, and I'm proud to be a professor. I'm not some wild-eyed radical. I've been, you know, somebody who's center-left for most of my life. Mm -hmm. If you study what's been going on, the Republican Party didn't used to be a threat to democracy. It's only in the last 15 years that Republicans uh, invoking the lie of voter fraud have come up with all these methods Um, of trying to suppress votes. And now in the last five years, if they lose elections, they're basically trying to undo the results of elections. So they steal the power of governors when Democrats are elected governor. They engage in the most grotesque forms of gerrymandering. In Wisconsin, they basically told voters, we don't care if you go out and get sick and maybe catch COVID and die. We're going to not allow you uh, to delay the election because we care more about trying to win a seat on the state Supreme Court and we care about our own citizens not being subjected to extraordinary danger. So, you know, lots of Republicans understand this right now. I mean, people like Stuart Stevens, Mm -hmm. uh, Christine Todd Whitman, Bill Kristol, there are lots of Republicans who understand that the Republican Party has just lost its sanity, and they now are willing to support an open authoritarian. Trump doesn't hide his authoritarian inclinations. He's quite open about it, and the Republican Party goes along with everything. They go along with mass obstruction of justice. They go along with uh, trying to blackmail 
uh, Ukraine and uh, digging up dirt on Joe Biden. They don't care that their bounties the Russians are putting on American soldiers, and Trump does nothing about that. They don't care that Trump is deliberately lying. He admits to Bob Woodard he's lying to the public about the severity of the coronavirus because he's worried about the stock market. So, um, you know, there, there are two different ways you can expand the court, and one of them is the proposal that I think most of the Democratic politicians you alluded to earlier uh, it's what they're favoring, and that's an effort to make the court more politically moderate, mm-hmm. balanced. That's the Buttigieg proposal is, you know, expand it to 15, but try to get five Democrats, five Republicans, and then get those 10 to pick five others who are not political. But that, that, there's no, no non-political. They just want moderation. Uh, maybe that's a good thing. That's a separate issue from undoing the theft. So if Democrats win the election in 2020, the presidential election, and win the Senate, they will have won the popular vote seven of the last elections. They will have not controlled the Supreme Court for the last 50 years. I don't know if you saw Mitt Romney's statement earlier today, but mm-hmm. it is the most complete bullshit I've ever heard. He said two things that are just factually untrue. He said Democrats are used to controlling the Supreme Court. Well, Democrats haven't controlled the Supreme Court since 1969. And he said the country is center-right and is entitled to have a center-right court. The country is not center-right. If you took a referendum of all Americans and you stopped with the vote suppression and you made Election Day a holiday and you made it easy for people to register, the country would be 15 or 20 points in the Democratic direction. Even if you had a national popular vote for the presidency, Trump has less than a 10% chance of winning that popular vote, but he still has like a 20 to 25% chance because the Electoral College is so biased in favor of Republicans. Biden needs to win the popular vote by more than three points before he has even a 50-50 chance. So, and the Senate is just massively malapportioned mm-hmm. in favor of Republicans. Clarence Thomas, uh, Samuel Alito, John Roberts would not have been confirmed by a Senate. That, uh, sorry, that, I got those wrong. It's... it's uh, Thomas, uh, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. None of those three would have been confirmed by a Senate apportion according to population. Right. And that's getting worse and worse. So we have a center-left country that can't control a Supreme Court that the left has not controlled for 50 years. And that's just ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> at some point, it's going to be so anti-democratic that people are going to rise up against it. So if you want to make the court more moderate, maybe that's a good thing to do. But I'm not sure, you know, if the country... You know, the country supports some things that aren't that Republicans don't regard as moderate anymore. People want to raise the minimum wage. People want to do something about climate change. People want gun control. You know, people support gay marriage. The Republican Party considers those things radical. I actually think those are kind of obvious, commonsensical policies. Are, are you concerned about uh, Joe Biden's uh, statements previously that, oh, no, that he, he doesn't want to expand the court, that that would be an endless uh, a battle between the parties? D- does that concern you? And would you expect him, especially if they ram through another uh, 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 justice here before the election, would you expect him or at least hope that he begins singing a different tune on this? So the only thing that's brought this up right now is, is for the most part, Ginsburg's death and the flagrant hypocrisy of McConnell and the Republican Party. That awoke people to the fact that something needs to be done. You can't go on fighting hardball with softball. You need to respond in kind. 
I don't blame Biden if he doesn't want to talk about this before the election. He wants to talk about the coronavirus pandemic and the disastrous response and the collapse of the economy and the fact that Republicans are its just unbelievable. Republicans are trying to take away people's health care during the worst nightmare of a pandemic in, mm-hmm. in the last hundred years in the United States. I mean, it's just unfathomable that that could be their view of what government's responsibility to its people are. So Biden doesn't want to talk about that now. If after the election, Biden and the Senate majority, if, if assuming it's Democratic, if they don't respond to this, I think I will probably just personally give up on the Democratic Party and never contribute any more money because I think basically you're just saying to the Supreme Court, you know, go ahead and strike down everything we've done, and we're just going to sit around and take it. And as I said earlier, I think you need to act now because I don't think you're going to get another opportunity to do this. So I don't care that Biden doesn't want to talk about it now. It does make me nervous when he says things like, I think Republicans, once Trump loses, are going to become more reasonable and I can talk to these people. That sounds like he missed his own eight years as vice president. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if he really believes that. American people like to hear talk about bipartisanship. But the, it is very important for people to understand there is an asymmetry to the polarization. The Republican Party over the last 15 years has lost its mind. The Democratic Party has moved to the left, but not that far to the left. The Republican Party has threatened to default on the national debt. They've stolen a Supreme Court seat. They blocked President Obama from appointing anyone to the Court of Appeals with two exceptions during his last term in office. They refused to confirm people to executive agencies. Uh, Mitch McConnell said to Obama, I'm not going to allow you to appoint the National Labor Relations Board couldn't function because they had so many vacancies. And McConnell said, the only way I'll fix, I'll, I'll allow you to, to nominate and confirm people is if it has a Republican majority. Right? That's never happened in the history of the country yeah. that a Republican Senate said to a Democratic president, you can't appoint people to run agencies so that those agencies function. Uh, Michael, it's I got... Complete asymptomy. Right. No, no, that's okay. I, I, I got to get out here, but I want to ask you very quickly uh, two more very quick questions. Um, because, well, one, by the way, I'm concerned uh, of the Democrats. I have heard talk about this uh, threatening. Well, we will expand the courts if you ram through another justice to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Seems to me. They ought to be planning to do that no matter whether uh, someone gets uh, jammed through right now because the court is already stolen. Not sure how to get that message to uh, to uh, Democrats. But that said, if, in fact, they were able to somehow expand the court uh, either by an additional two seats to get the majority back that they should rightly have or four seats if they ram some if the Republicans ram somebody through right now could, in fact, a sitting Six to three right wing uh, uh, Supreme Court majority, ironically enough, find some constitutional argument to uh, somehow find it unconstitutional to expand the court. That's such a great question, Brad. So two things. I totally agree with the premise. Uh, court court enlargement in response to the Republicans diminishment of the size of the court was fully called for before Justice Ginsburg's death. And indeed, as my wife pointed out the other day, in a way, the argument is less strong after Ginsburg's death, because you could say that the Scalia death in February of 2016 cancels out the Ginsburg death in September of 2020, and we're back to a situation where Republicans would be entitled to control the court. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's my position, but I think that's a position one could take, and then it would require an argument to respond to that. So yes, 
Democrats certainly should have enlarged the court before the death of Justice Ginsburg. After her death, it becomes a more complicated argument. But I think actually McConnell's claim, you know, two, uh, four years ago mm-hmm. that you shouldn't do this in election year was nonsense. And his claim that there was historical precedent for it was just an outright lie. But the idea that maybe you shouldn't pick a new justice 45 days before the election, that's not a crazy argument, in which case what they're about to do is also illegitimate. Adding two seats will do nothing because it's a six to three Republican majority. Mm -hmm. So the question is whether to add uh, four seats to give the Democrats back the majority they're entitled to. Would the court strike that down? That's a great question. Court expansion is obviously constitutionally permissible. But that doesn't mean the Supreme Court will uphold it. The Supreme Court has done crazy things on ideological grounds before. Bush versus Gore was a ridiculous decision mm-hmm. that before it happened, no constitutional lawyer, right or left, would have said was a valid constitutional argument. And the court came within a hair's breadth of striking down the Affordable Care Act, even though the argument against the constitutionality of Congress regulating health care by imposing a national mandate was obviously permissible under any preceding understanding of the Commerce Clause. So I would suspect that several of the Republican justices would strike down court enlargement. I don't think the Chief Justice would, because I think he cares about the legitimacy of the court. But at that point, you know, all hell breaks loose, because the Supreme Court has cast itself as you know, the obstructor of a progressive Democratic majority. And I don't know what happens at that point, but I certainly think they could do that. They'll make an argument that, you know, 150 years of not expanding the court basically establish a very strong precedent, and you don't get to obliterate that precedent based on partisan motives. That, you know, I don't know that they'll do that, but they do stuff like that all the time, right? All there has to be is a strong partisan motivation and then a faintly colorable constitutional argument, and the argument that if we haven't done something for 150 years, maybe we shouldn't be doing it, it's not a crazy argument. So I could imagine them striking it. And, of course, even if the uh, Supreme Court, uh, the the Chief Justice in that case, does vote along with the liberals, they're still able to strike it down 5-4 to at that rate. Professor Michael Klarman, he's the Kirkland and Ellis professor at Harvard Law School. Please buckle up, Professor, uh, because this could get ugly in the next few months and we may need to call on you again. So stay well and stay safe out there, sir. Take care, Brad. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Michael. Okay, quick break, and we go from anti-democracy back to anti-science with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to, 
That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. So, Desi Doyen and I was talking to uh, Michael Klarman there over the yes. break. He says that uh, if, in fact, the 6-3 to three Supreme Court finds expanding the Supreme Court to be unconstitutional, yeah. there's, there's another idea. Democrats could always create a new Supreme Court. Wild. Uh, through legislation. He says that actually happened in Kentucky back in the 1800s. Wow. So, see, there's always a way that we can save ourselves. <laughs> Looking on the bright side. We'll see if we can save ourselves from what's going on, however, in our planet in our latest Green News Report. We have gone through the typical alphabet, and we are now fully into the Greek alphabet. So this record-breaking season continues. Tropical Storm Beta breaks century-old record as it grinds into storm-weary Gulf Coast. Smoke from record wildfires in the West is causing another public health crisis. Plus, I respect all of my colleagues and genuinely like most of them. The loss of trailblazing Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a loss for the environment. All of those losses and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Yesterday, Joe Biden was endorsed by Scientific American. I assume because of all the horrible things Trump has said about science and America. Correct. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, is it just me or are we getting hit by, oh, I don't know, one or two hurricanes or tropical storms every damn week right now? (laughs) It's pretty much like that. And we are not done with this historic 2020 Atlantic hurricane season, driven by man-made global warming of the oceans. First, post-tropical storm Teddy is about to hit Nova Scotia, and we've used up the English letters in the storm naming system and are now on to the Greek alphabet for only the second time on record. The first time was in the blockbuster 2005 season. Ah, yes. Hurricane Katrina. On Friday, three tropical storms formed in just six hours. That's only happened one time before on record. The first two Greek-named storms, Alpha and Beta, have developed more than than a month earlier than in the 2005 season. Very slow-moving tropical storm Beta could bring a foot of rain and intense flooding to weary coastal areas as it crawls along the coast of Texas to Louisiana. Beta is the ninth tropical storm or hurricane to hit the U.S. mainland in a single season. There are more than two months to go until hurricane season ends on November 30th, so late-season storms could impact the last day to vote on November 3rd, so please make your voting plan now. What do they do when they run out of Greek alphabet letters? I don't think that's ever happened before, so I don't think anyone knows. Well, buckle up. Just saying. In the western wildfires, NASA satellite photos show the massive smoke plume from the West Coast fires is so large that it is interacting with the hurricane systems on the Gulf Coast and the East Coast. One firefighter has died battling the unprecedented blazes. In California alone, nearly 8,000 fires have consumed more than 3.4 million acres and claimed 26 lives, nine in Oregon. Reuters reports smoke from the U.S. has reached Europe, and the smoke is compounding 
solving the coronavirus health crisis by pushing air pollution in the Pacific Northwest to record levels. Seattle has converted some coronavirus-dedicated facilities into clean air shelters to provide safe havens from the smoke. And health experts are warning of the potential for long-term damage to the developing lungs of children. You know, if America gets any greater, I'm not sure we can stand it. And it's not just in the West, of course. The New York Times reports that other countries are also experiencing record wildfires in 2020. Siberia, Indonesia, Brazil, Argentina, and of course, the worst bushfire season on record in Australia in January. Scientists say that human-caused climate change plays a significant role in the fires. Major conflagrations are now at least 30 percent more likely than they would have been in a world without global warming. In an interview with CBS, Columbia University bioclimatologist Park Williams explains that, yes, fires and droughts are getting worse because of rising global temperatures. We're seeing an acceleration of forest fire because of climate change, because as you warm the atmosphere, then forest fire responds non-linearly, meaning that every degree of warming actually causes more forest fire than the previous degree of warming. Finally, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away on Friday, had a distinctive and nuanced environmental legacy. She established broad interpretations of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and other major pollution laws. Justice Ginsburg wrote the landmark Laid Law opinion in 2000 that established broad standing for people to sue polluters without having to prove direct injury. She helped establish the legal foundation of current and future federal climate regulations by upholding the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Senate Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has shamelessly reversed his previous position from 2016 and now pledges to ram through a new Trump nominee, ensuring a right-wing supermajority on the court that could cement Trump's rollbacks of Obama-era pollution and emission standards and could strike down any future climate legislation. This is a high-stakes battle that will reshape America and our ability to address the climate crisis for decades to come. A lot of battles. It's getting tough out there for the planet, for mankind, and for this country, for sure. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Yep. Yep, that's kind of where we are. It is indeed. Thank you very much, Desi Doyan, our producer. Also, my thanks to Michael Klarman of Harvard Law School, my guest today, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated. I know it's not easy these days, so thank you. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That, of course, is made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We are 100% listener-supported, and you are 100% our listeners, so thank you. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.